back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that you'll find hanging out in the backs of dingy jazz lounges. Drug-free, though, Amanda. Drug-free. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little whiff of pot, you know? I don't know what our vibe is on this podcast. We keep things loose, (laughs) uh, and and neither of us are stoned (laughs) while recording it, (laughs) but (laughs) maybe that's the vibe. Definitely no hard (laughs) drugs, though, for us. No needles? How about that? We can draw a line. Yes, no needles, definitely, unless we're getting tattoos. Ooh, yeah, it's a form of <laughs> drug addiction in its own way, or <laughs> I don't know. It's true. <laughs> yeah, some people certainly get hooked on them, so shout-outs to all our tattooed users and listeners out there. That's, uh, yeah, respect to it. If you have absolutely no idea why we're talking about hanging out in jazz lounges and not doing drugs, it is because we're here today with a book club episode. Specifically, this is the part two book club episode for the novel Homegoing by Ya Jesse. Did I get the name right? I did not refresh. You did. All right, sweet. And many names to be butchered in the coming hour, but that'll be the one that we get right. So anyway, um, book club episodes are analytical deep dives, and as I mentioned, this is our part two, so we'll be covering the back half of the novel Homegoing, and then discussing really the book as a whole. It's our chance to break down and analyze everything. As I mentioned, we are the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on social media and follow us there. We have an Instagram account and a Facebook account that are both updated somewhat regularly, pretty regularly, with the schedule, reminders of what we've been reading and what we've covered and posted, so follow us there. As always, we appreciate any follows, likes. What are all the verbs now? Give me every social media verb you know, Amanda. (laughs) Subscribe, Uh. like... Yeah, okay, I know subscribe. <laughs> yeah, subscribe on any podcast platform. We're up on just about all of them. Am I missing one? Like, tell your friends, retweet, tweet. It's kind of a unique verb. Anyway, we appreciate all of that. So find us, follow us, etc. Should we get into it, Amanda? I don't think we really need to set up the book. If you think you found this episode an error, we do have a book recommendation in the feed for this novel, Homegoing. And again, part one of our book club is also posted. So essentially, we're just going to dive right into it. Any notes up top, Amanda, before we dig in? No, I'm ready. All right. Yeah, let's talk about Homegoing. Um, We're going to start with our first segment for second half book clubs, which is highs and lows, or which are highs and lows, I suppose. This is just a way for us to discuss how we thought the book wrapped up, things we liked or didn't like. Amanda, why don't you start us with a high or a low? Sure. I'll start with um, with the lows. I like getting the, the bad stuff out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, not even bad, less enjoyable. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, so one of them for me is just that some of the characters seemed um, a bit less developed, less nuanced, and... Um, more static than others. They weren't very dynamic in nature. Yeah. So generally speaking, Effie has descendants. So the, the Gold Coast narratives, I think, for me, really worked. Um, I think partly because they're, the, the characters themselves are not... Um, they're not... I don't want to say like stereotypes, but they're just... They're not um, there as symbolic figureheads in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Yeah. And they we actually see some of the like more personal dramas, the emotions are better played out. The um the reasoning behind their um decisions and and their actions are are more at the forefront there. Yeah. It's just better developed versus the the American narratives while I found them entertaining, um it was very much um more of the symbolic purpose i think um these characters were more there for for symbolism than for for actual character development in a lot of ways and so Mm -hmm. i can appreciate that and i know why she did that but it it, 
how different those two narratives are, it was kind of like jarring, I think. Structural risk, right? I mean, when you decide that you're going to reset every chapter, that means you renew the challenge to develop something interesting, get a plot going, have a character dynamically set up. And it did feel static. I felt like some of the turns too were, were just too abrupt or, you know, it's, you set yourself up for with this challenge, and that means that some twists and turns, like the the chapter, I forget the characters' names. I'm again blanket apology. I'm not going to remember any names. <laughs> I'm just going to do all plot description anyway. But the character who becomes a heroin addict, like that Sunny. turn, is just so fast that it yeah. it's like I get, you know, she's categorizing, uh, not categorizing, um, cataloging all of this trauma, and so. Moments like that, especially when he doesn't start off that way in the beginning of that chapter, it just you have to do that really delicately. We talked earlier in part one about there was another character who had a kind of a romantic interest in his friend. Uh, and there was kind of a hint of a gay romance. Again, just felt abrupt to me. Like, did why yeah. is it? You know, it had some thematic resonance. We talked about that. But yeah, it's just ambitious and I think comes across as a bit shallow at times or maybe a bit fast. Yeah. yeah. Did you find, I'll I'll do a high then to just contrast. I thought in the back half, H's story was pretty great. Uh, Maybe not like the strongest one, but I think I connected to it the most. It was pretty clear. It had some, a couple different developments. It had some, the moments in the coal mines were brutal, but she also, for as much as there's sorrow and brutality and even violence in basically every story, do you feel like her writing was kind of reserved? It felt very safe to me or something, very smooth and not a, I don't even mean that as a compliment necessarily, because there were times when I wanted a little more push back, like against me as a reader, like something a little more forceful. Yeah, the, I think... Uh, there were some like brutal. I like what I had said in the in the first um, episode. We we talked about how brutal this is, but it's not grotesque in right, any way. Right. Um, and so, it, especially with like some of the American narratives, there it's because we can't. I couldn't anyway like emotionally attach myself to some of these characters. Um, the the brutality of their situation was like horrendous, but I personally, because I did not connect with these characters, didn't feel it as brutal as some of the things that happened in the um, Gold Coast narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just think the it all felt pretty mild or safe, and I mean the style. The content's quite intense right. for sure. Yes, but it the sure. style of it. And it's a lot of, because she keeps jumping, obviously, chronology and characters, there's a lot of summary in it, too. There's just a lot of expository, and it's not badly done or anything. It just doesn't feel intense or something it, it it feels like there's a lot of pausing or something in the in the style yeah. of it all so but anyway to get back to the high i just thought h's story like i enjoyed the little aspect i thought it was dynamic too just in the different things it explored obviously there's ideas in there about prison labor and prisoner labor how the history of that the exploitation of it then there's mm-hmm. union elements that creep in and some um interracial dynamic stuff because of his friend who's white and there's some distrust uh co-worker and friend so anyway, I just thought his story was it was very clear. I thought the ideas it presented or, and kind of toyed with were interesting. The ending where he meets up with his like long lost love was like, I don't know, a little convenient, maybe or silly or something. But it was I don't I just thought his story was the strongest. Um, I, yeah, I liked him as a character as well, especially like yeah. because 
we get to see more of him in Willie's story, his daughter's story. Yeah, yeah. Um, where we see that connection between the two of them, and then that carries on into her narrative, which right. I also thought, like, so H and Willie um, in the second half on the American side were, I think, the two best narratives, okay. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And wasn't it H's... I guess who ended up becoming his wife, but wasn't it the one where he got home and she was just cooking something in the house? Yeah. She was just kind of settled in. I thought that was kind of a cute moment. It was charming yeah. and interesting, you know. Then she fittingly enough like burns the meal or something. That's when you See, know, she did it on purpose, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you come <laughs> back to somebody burn. after that long, it's there's gonna be some tension. <laughs> yeah. Any other lows that you want to get out there? I have two mixed ones, so Yeah, um the other low that I um had mentioned was that the language style didn't really grip me. me Some of the descriptions were unique and beautiful, but the language in general didn't really pop for me. Um, So some of the most beautiful language actually comes from the gold coast narratives where she, she actually like does a lot with like similes and metaphors, especially with nature um, is a huge theme with the gold coast narratives. And I thought that uh, her descriptions, there were, often really beautiful but Mm -hmm. on the the american narratives not i didn't see that kind of style as as developed as the gold coast narratives but Mm -hmm. um yeah it's that was just something that i had noticed that i was like oh especially coming off of like a similar novel not similar novel but like similar scope with burnt shadows and the language there was yeah, just my so God. Yeah. beautiful yeah comparing and yeah. contrasting paragraphs against with these two books would be very instructive i think it's that yeah. book was written in, in very i you know the quibbly way to say it would be heavy handedly or something but it is it it is a striking difference this just feels how did I phrase it earlier, right? Like smooth or non-confrontational or a little yeah. too... It's It flows a little too well in a strange way to say. Obviously, flow in writing is very important, <laughs> but it's almost yeah. frictionless in a strange way. Yeah. So, yeah. I Let me throw one out there that I thought was mixed. So I've got a high-low combo here. Um, is it aqua, aqua? How do you want to do it? I pronounce it in my mind as aqua, but aqua. I don't know. <laughs> or it could be aqua. <laughs> It could be a cool. It could be the mm-hmm. uh sound and then the pause. Um, let's go with you said Acua. Yeah, Acua. We'll do we'll do that <laughs> pronunciation. That's fine. These yeah, I'm just so terrible with names. I thought that the moment in her story where she had the vision and then woke up in the fire, I it was interesting because I, I enjoyed it symbolically and I, I thought it was a pretty potent moment. And then obviously it has such ramifications for the back half of the story, how the fire afflicts the family and puts in this generational trauma. So in that sense, I, I you know, it was an interesting, satisfying moment. But to have someone who is afflicted by almost like have these premonitions, there just isn't. Was there really another character in the story where it had such a strange plot twist, unexplainable like, it just, I don't know, the whole flow of that scene felt really strange to me, like if it was from a different book. Not the themes, not the ideas, not the character and backstory, which was all written in a similar register. But it was mostly just the, I don't know, the premonition-y vision nature of that just seemed odd to me. Like, I didn't know how to respond to it. It was one of the only things I felt confused by, where I then, I think, again, thematically, the fire stuff pays off. And there's some yeah. interest there for sure. But I don't, yeah. Did you react? Did you think it flowed well or that it, the story deserved a kind of plot moment like that? Because it just, there were, I couldn't think of any other stories in this book that did something similar to that. 
It, yeah, so none of the stories are quite so heavy with, like, the premonition and stuff. Marcus maybe has a little bit of that, the very last chapter, right, or the right. last narrative. But I think that if we if we look at each narrative as a separate story, if we were to take this story out and just, like, study it on its own, the what I, what I picked up on was that one of the, the major motifs, one of the major themes of this story is the idea of, like, the Christian Western belief system um, versus yeah. what she called the fetish priest, which is just, which I thought was an interesting term, but which is um, the, the traditional belief system mm-hmm. of of the of uh the gold coast so um she starts off with like being taught because she was raised in 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 the church uh being taught a certain way and then she finds out that the preacher is the one who actually killed her mom by forcing her to get baptized and right, drowning right. her in the process yeah, yeah. which is very symbolic um <laughs> yeah and then, but she continues a relationship with the fetish priest. And then, like, after that, that's when the nightmares started really happening is when she left the church. And the nightmares were her premonitions. So it's like mm-hmm. this, she's further away from the the Western influence, which then allows yeah. her to retu- return to her roots, which, I mean, begins with, like, a terrible thing, which is, murdering her children but later in the stories of um, Marjorie and the story of um, y'all they forgive her and everything but also she is just like truly blessed with like premonitions and with being able to connect with the the descendants which is how because remember their um, their descendant line was broken as well because Abina's father James left his left left Kiwi in the village or Quay mm-hmm. in the village yeah. and um, did not tell Abina anything except to give her the the stone and to be like he didn't tell her anything about the family right right so Abina could not tell anything to her daughter and also she died by the time her daughter was one by the time that Akua was one and so Akua's knowledge of their lineage which she tells to marjorie marjorie summarizes it in the in her Mm -hmm. yeah narrative so she knows it but it's because of the the knowledge from um akua's relationship with um with the gods of of her people and stuff like that yeah it was it's odd to go from chapters that are i I think of the harlem one or i guess there's a couple in harlem but the one the drug addiction one for example, yeah, and then to jump to, I don't remember the order of them, but then to jump to this, you know, there's a passage in here. It's just a, it's a total vision. And then of course yeah. she like manifested to becoming true. You know, it's very symbolic. It's very strange. Obviously it's like a dream vision. So it's just, I don't know. I, it, I, at first maybe I thought stylistically, I was thinking back and thinking, oh, well, stylistically, maybe just the, the Ghana-based or, you know, West West Coast of Africa-based stuff just reads differently. I mean, obviously, there's the cultural differences are significant. But then I looked over some of the Yaw stuff again, and then I went back and looked over the first one, I think, the, the original. Was it Effie? Effina? Effie, yeah. 
Effia. Effia. But there's yeah. nothing like that in her. Or at least I don't. Maybe I didn't do a thorough enough checking again. But I was just like, where else is is the writing like this? Or are there moments? So I, in that sense, it just kind of elevated um, Akua's like importance because it's it is just a very yeah. intense and unique section. So. I think it just kind of elevated the way I read it or something. It, yeah, again, high low. I didn't dislike the moment, but I also thought, what book am you know, like what book am I in? This is a unique, different way to interpret these characters. I don't know, generational trauma and all that stuff. So, any highs? Did yeah. you do your lows? Yep, I finished my lows, so I'll do a high. Um, I I did enjoy the the scope of the story. I think that there were mm-hmm. some problems with it, but I did enjoy the intention of the scope. And I like that the stories are generational. I think that it was really entertaining to see how um, these traumas are passed down. And and I thought that that, that was mm-hmm. a really interesting way to approach that. And um, I also liked um, how she, how Jesse examined how these external factors um, can really impact external being like, yeah, things that you've learned from your parents, things that you've witnessed, um, things that your government fails to do for you, things that your government actively does against you and stuff like that. Um, I, I thought that was really interesting to see how that both affects generations, but also how it affects like mm-hmm. two different cultural systems, two different countries. Um, so I just, I thought that that was a very ambitious scope, but it was, uh, I thought that it was great that she tried to tackle that, and, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, you can almost feel because, and because some of the chapters to me are just some are just better than others. Which, yeah, you can almost feel her book. The prompt literally was about pick something published when she was young or when the author's young, and you can kind of feel her flexing the muscles or kind of like warming up or something in the writer in the writing and the yeah. storytelling. Like it's a very bold idea for like a first novel or first, you know, really long book or something. So yeah, it was, and in that sense, I don't think it's a total success, but you're right. It, the project was ambitious and it can, and it carries it through in a very clear, coherent way, like at the worst, right? Like yeah. I, I don't know if it's transcendently yeah. good. I would say no, but it, it definitely fulfills something really interesting. And I think at the core of it is like a good idea. So, yeah, yeah, I would agree. It's I kind agree. of a high. I have one more mixed one I can throw out there. Yeah. The ending? Thoughts? Maybe a little melodramatic for me? Maybe a little obvious? I Didn't we predict... I think I predicted jokingly in the part one pod that there would be some kind of... That they would come back together, like they would have to meet, which seemed, I guess, just obvious, and that's fine. Um Maybe a little too melodramatic symbolically. Like there's a fire at the beach. I was like, okay. I mean, and I'm not mad about it, but it's, <laughs> uh, you know, they both literally address their fears and talk about them out loud at that moment. So it's kind of, I, you know, it's fine. I, I again feel like it was coherent, which is always to be praised in a ambitious book like this. What did you? How did you read the ending in terms of any tension? sexual romantic tension because that was one thing that i thought maybe the book would would really force that it's sort of they've officially come back together i don't it felt way more ambiguous than that to me did you read the ending is that they were romantically intertwined and they were going to like rejoin the family or something in that sense not at all the way that i read it is that they treated each other already as family like brother and sister in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways which is why she gave him her necklace 
because her dad expressly told her, like, do not give this necklace. This is only for family. And she gives mm-hmm. it to him, showing that she thinks. Yeah, she welcomes family. him home, I think, is the so. phrase or something. So. Right. So I, I did not feel like there was going to ever be any kind of romantic anything between them. It would just be family. Yeah, yeah and the the re it didn't yeah. need it to work. It was just it's funny yeah. because in all the other chapters, once you know the format, you're waiting to see who they get romantically intertwined with because that's the whole point. Literally yeah. every chapter <laughs> has to propel you into the next generation. So you have it's like you you almost right. have to know like okay, well who, how are we going to get to another you know who's going to who's the romance interest slash how are we going to have descendants? <laughs> and so out of part right. of me was like this has to be what that is then, but no, I. I I think it's the text itself does not speak to it like at all so i think it's left totally yeah. open it, it would not i wonder too just thinking about this out loud i wonder if maybe she kept it neutral because there's obviously you don't want to date your family members but i i think at that level of generational remove wouldn't that be i mean at some point it yeah, becomes be okay. semantics right <laughs> I, like at some point it is not a concern I, anyway not something i know anything about and i can't speak to the genetics of it all anyway but i just it wouldn't have been creepy or weird to me i guess is all i wanted to say if she went hard romance yeah. or it was clear they were in love or you know they're on vacation together and stuff so it's like i you know maybe they're just having a friend vacation but it, to me if, if it would have yeah. been explicitly romantic i would have just shrugged and thought again maybe a little obvious but not bad it was just kind of like yeah okay that seems right yeah, when I was reading the final chapter and they go to the castle and he's in the room yeah, that like right. was or that Essie was in, I was like, if he finds the stone, like that's gonna yeah, be too much. We that's joked too about that. <laughs> we literally laughed <laughs> yeah, being like, There's no way. <laughs> that would be way too much. Yeah. Yeah. So glad that yeah. didn't happen. He had his own symbolic moment, <laughs> you know, uh, going against the directions and bursting through the door. So Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I thought mixed the ending. Again, I, melodramatic, maybe a touch. Again, maybe a little obvious or something, but it, I thought it wrapped it up well and maybe fulfilled some clear expectations that the book had set up, thematic and otherwise. Yeah. Any other highs or lows to hit? Uh, yeah, I've got one more high, and um, my high is the repeating motifs. I thought that she did a really great job. This this <clears throat> novel reads like a short story collection Um but the she keeps it all together, I think, in a lot of ways by having <clears throat> a lot of the same motifs kind of rolling mm-hmm. through each of the narratives. So we've got fire as a huge one, the necklace itself, um, water as an image um, often appears, and also like the discussions of the belief systems um, where we have like both in America and in uh, the Gold Coast right. where they're talking about. Uh, the Western Church versus um, the the the, uh, the the belief systems of um, of of Ghana at that time. So I just thought that was really nice um, that she did that, and also like the first paragraph versus the last page, where the first paragraph in the book is about fire, mm-hmm. and then the last page is about the water. And the healing effects of the water, they both like cleanse themselves in the water at home and um, find joy and peace in that way. So I thought that was a, a nice kind of like way to tie all that together. Too. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It was interesting to have the final narratives or final arcs reference 
the slave ships and stuff so intensely when that really was skipped over. I mean, they, they showed the imprisonment. Yeah. It doesn't, it's always that tough line because at some point you don't want to be gratuitous or it's, you know, it can be so right. grotesque that it would be like, there's just no need. I think Colson Whitehead, when we read the underground railroad, did it about as walk the line, right. as about as closely as you can between not making it right. seem exploitative or leering and anyway, but that, I just thought mm-hmm. it, that was an interesting thing to that the, get, to get so fixated on when it wasn't even in the book. But I think it's yeah, it, it made sense though. The dungeon scene was yeah. brutal enough. So, any other highs or lows? That was basically mine. Did I forget one? No, I covered them all. No, yeah, I'm kind of a too. mixed reaction for me, but solid. We'll talk more about this in the recommendation, yep. but it's. Yeah, it was very mixed, but mostly good, good things. Let's jump now to the imaginary essay segment. This is a part we do on the second part book clubs where we dive in deeper and pick some kind of uh, imaginary essay prompt just that we can outline and talk through and think through. We don't actually write essays for this. We just prep an outline and use it to analyze the book one more time in some kind of close manner. Do you want me to go first? I feel like I always make you go first. I can go first if you want. Yeah, sure. I'll take it on. Um, feel free to set it up whenever. <laughs> I uh, So I kind of stole part of this from uh, a discussion board that I saw. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so we see the impact of imperialism on the Gold Coast from the very first chapter, um, but kind of looking at it from a different angle. What role do patriotism, heritage, and tradition play in contributing to the injustices, prejudices, and violence depicted in the book, especially in the American chapters? Yeah, I kind of just ignored that part of the prompt, I guess. I don't even think I, I don't even, (laughs) now that I look back, I don't even think I've read the ending, (laughs) the American part. I think I just looked at the initial words in the prompt and was like, okay. That's fine. Well, okay. I can, I'll, I'll go off the cuff a little bit for it then. I pulled quotes for some other things. It, now that I look at it, the main part of my answer was going to be about, um, you're calling her Marjorie, right? The, yeah. The yeah, Mar- it's Marjorie and then, yeah. then uh, Aqua. So uh, I mostly fixated on their relationship because, again, Aqua's introduction felt extremely pivotal to me looking back, mm-hmm. how unique it was, the intensity of some of it. And then also it seems like she gets hit thematically by every significant like intersecting idea thread or something she's like a little bit involved in every single thing developing in the story except for being in america so i totally botched that part of the question (laughs) i don't um i think we kind of hit this in part one or i remember talking about it about motherhood mothers i think i even broadened it to something like womanhood or something crazy but yeah yeah, there you go yeah that sounds like something i would do anyway (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I do think that this consistently, maybe it's because it has to be a story of having children, because the whole point is that it's intergenerational stuff. So it's like, there have to be kids and child having in the in every chapter. But I do think that the, in terms of inheriting trauma, heritage, tradition, the, the role women play in, in it is quite significant then. In the American one, we talked about the and this is where the names will fail me, but the, the really strong-willed woman, kind of quiet woman on the plantation who then defies being a slave literally tries to escape to get her child to freedom or safety that did that happened right yeah so yeah and so that's that jumps out significantly we also read her as like a uniquely in control um woman because some of the other ones had uh, been more passive or in the gold coast there's traditions of just you know trading wives or selling daughters so to speak um maybe not for money but for other things and so 
that definitely jumps out. I think the story places a good amount of faith and strength into the mothers. The Harlem chapters stand out in that regard too, because the mom. There's that really intense scene with the with the drug addict at the dinner. Yeah. Where the mom sort of, I don't know, just confronts him about it and makes him make a decision, so to speak, and it seems to end pretty positively, right? We get the news later on that he ended up having a somewhat stable life, even, you know, despite his addiction and everything. And so I think that they're a real stabilizing force, a very grounding force. I can't really think, in the American side, of a mother who fails. Can you think of one? Or is sort of, or would be considered, I don't know, like passive or disinterested or again a failure like it they all stand up pretty aggressively and firmly yeah no i mean like other than uh sunny's girlfriend who is marcus's mom um who got oh, that in, it, into drugs, oh okay yeah. that does end up okay i wasn't sure if sunny already had because didn't weren't there references that he already had other kids around yeah he had three babies from three different okay women and I marcus just assumed, was his fourth so Marcus was with the woman who introduced him to the drugs, the jazz singer, or the the lady in the jazz clubs. That's his mother. Yeah, Sonny, I didn't, yeah so Sonny yeah, is gotcha. uh, the son of Willie, and Sonny got yeah, involved yeah, yeah. with the lady who was into drugs, and then they had right. Marcus. Oh, okay. So I had no idea. So that would be the example then, and Marcus is kind of the the exception, or, so, or his background is kind of the exception to that. But yeah, that would be, I think, for my uh, the American aspect of this question would be my answer would be pretty firmly rooted in that I think Mm -hmm. just because I you know there's also a passage towards the end this is what happens when I don't prep the right quotes for the question I'm just (laughs) freestyling just trying to remember things but there is a passage when I believe it's is it Yaw who says this or talks about this or it's a different character but essentially just that like there we you become um, detached from your homeland, whatever that phrase means to you over general, you know, it's the phrase I think in the book was sort of like, look around us at Harlem. This is the homeland. Like it's not, there's no other place to go back to. I've never been to another place. You know, my family had never been to another, you know, it's at some point you're from where the the immediate heritage is placed you, not some deeper lineage or something. I forget which character conveys that. I believe it's, is it in Sonny's chapter? He's arguing with somebody, I think at the NAACP about that idea. Mm-hmm. But and so that st- stands out to me too. If you're going to ask me a question about tradition in the novel, I mean, obviously the way it ends symbolically and otherwise, there's a real healing component to going home, to like facing the root of your trauma, to trying to track this back, trying to understand, right? Swimming in the ocean, <laughs> um, yeah. trying to hear those uh, muddled screams under the water or whatever. Like I think the the novel is pretty clear about healing being through that path, but also. The the one thing, obviously, about the American half of this is that it is a, obviously, in the course of history of slavery, an awful reinvention, but it is a new thing. It's, you know, you you have to reinvent, you have to come up with new traditions, a new have a new homeland, so to speak. And so, yeah, I think that passage would be pretty meaningful in that, too. I do think, ultimately, given the conclusion, obviously, you'd have to read it as kind of like a you have to embrace or at least acknowledge your tradition's history in order to heal, right? In order to be become right or something, right. become good. And I think to get back to what I was going to initially answer with just on the Ghana side, as I mentioned, Aqua is really fascinatingly positioned in the novel because she gets, I think the key pivotal realization moment in the entire story through her great, is a great granddaughter or granddaughter Mar- Marjorie? Granddaughter. 
granddaughter. And so I think that it has some of the clearest thematic stuff in the entire book that comes through her section. Also, she kind of has a redemption story to her whole reputation and to how the village perceived her and how people thought of her. And so I think there, her, I don't know, position in the story is maybe the most representative or the most symbolic or something. At some point, she says... Um, old lady, is what she says. Uh, what have I told you about death on 276? Old lady said sharply into the phone, her voice sounding stronger than it had at the beginning of their conversation. Marjorie tugged at the cord. Old lady said that only bodies die. Spirits wandered. They found Asamondo, or they didn't. They stayed with their descendants to guide them through life, to comfort them, and sometimes to scare them into waking from their fog of unloving, unliving. And then she says, I promise I'll never leave you. So I think, I mean, that exchange, that memory is about as clear as it gets. I think, in terms of the book's thesis about this and about tradition and trying to keep these things alive, stay with you. Yeah, so that would be, that's my brief answer. No, I know I didn't have a lot of page numbers for that, but (laughs) I just freestyled my off the memory there with the American side. That's great. So, yeah. Any thoughts on tradition? Any traditions that I missed? I didn't talk about H much. Well, he, yeah. He's an interesting one, too, because he's like the... I mean the the American lineage is is broken pretty early on with Kojo anyway, and with um, even with Ness because she's like right not allowed to know much about her culture right because they're punished mm-hmm. anytime they they talk in Twee or anything like that or Twi I I kept pronouncing it Twee in my head I don't know um, mm-hmm. but yeah H was interesting too because he just straight up doesn't even know his parents right he was just. Mm-hmm. His right. mom died like immediately, and then he was raised on the plantation. Like, yeah, he had no parentage. Right, just grounds himself in kind of a singular, simple work mindset or something. Yeah, just yeah, he's very. I was gonna say propulsive. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but yeah, you know, he's like a train, <laughs> one yeah. track, g- grinding ahead, f- flying ahead, and in, in any way. So yeah, that's a that's a brief answer to this freestyled. Just know that I think. Aqua is the, I think, kind of the turn. And the, what's the, what's the expression? Skeleton key. It's like a key that unlocks mm. everything. <laughs> or is that the expression? Key. Yeah, like a master key or something. Yeah. She, I think, it, it, the more I think back on this book and look at all the pieces, does feel like a bit of a master key. And especially maybe it's just because of how it ends for her too. But okay, uh, let me throw my question your way then. I went with a really simple one. Sometimes the simplest questions are the hardest though, because it's pretty open ended. <laughs> um, this is an ambitious book, to be sure. So I thought I would just throw at a fill of the blank in y- at you, and then have you just back up whatever blank you say. Uh, and then the fill in the blank is homegoing is a story about blank. And I wrote to limit yourself to maybe five to ten words, just so you couldn't, you know, had to keep it challenging. So yeah. take it away. Would you say? Um, I just chose three words. <laughs> nice. Very limited. Uh, <laughs> homegoing is a story about generational inherited trauma. Mm, mm-hmm. So um, the very first um, page, the very first paragraph, we see fire, which is scarring, it's um, consuming, it's violent, and it's also the the means for um, Effia's mother to escape her traumatic life. Right, um, which we later find out that Effia's father probably raped Effia's mother because she was a, a house, a house girl. Right, that's what they called them, a house girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, house girl worker. Yeah, um, 
against her will, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. So this act defines Mame's life, and Mame is is Effia and Essie's mother. And so this act of violence of of um, of trauma for her defines her life, but it also affects Effia's life through Baba's treatment of her and uh, eventually selling her, essentially, to um, Mary James, um, the the British soldier, um, which also directly affects Effia's son, um, Quay, QE, and mm-hmm. also affects Essie's life, the other daughter that she had by choice. Um, but um, we see that her relationship with Essie is very much defined by her loss of Effia and her guilt about Effia. And also when they have their own house girl, which they call, I think the little dove, um, the treatment of the little dove uh, brings out a lot of her old traumas and also makes Essie realize what's happening. And she realizes that information about her own mother, um, which then haunts Essie and makes her feel guilty about the ways that she's treated other people, especially people who uh, were captured and uh, put in the same position as her mother once was. And then later she herself is also captured and then um, forced into slavery as well. And so the, the traumas there we see passed down to the daughters and create these uh, feelings of, of guilt and negativity that affect their ideas of their own self-worth in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, which then passes down through the generations. And it's also like not helped by the external influences of like the times that they're living in and the situations that they're put in um, against their will. So the way that I looked at the novel too is like the Effia side. So the gold coast side uh, focuses more on, like the domestic side of inherited trauma, where we see a lot more of um, like how personal decisions, regardless of uh, what's happening on the outside, because there is war raging in in their land at that time, right? They're trying to get rid of the British. They're also warring against each other, and it's just like yeah, constant background of violence. But the focus isn't on that. There's mentions of that, but the focus is actually more right. on like the domestic circle. Whereas with the American narratives, it's a lot more a focus on what's happening around them and how that directly affects the characters as well. So how those things, the the external factors, um, mm-hmm. things outside of their domestic sphere, are are contributing to their traumas as well. Um, so, but either way, it's, it's generational either way it is inherited and it's something that just kind of like eats away at this family and, and causes a whole lot of grief throughout their lineage, um, until Marjorie and, and Marcus, um, mm. I had for each of the characters, like kind of come up with a list of things that, um, was their trauma and how it contributed to it. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's I don't need to go through that but like for the America narrative like the external factors yeah, yeah. being like the obviously slavery um, and then 
after that is the Fugitive Slave Act specifically, which affects Kojo and affects how he views the world and how, how much fear he has and how he can't really live um, like openly, he feels right. like. Yeah. Um, and then H, H's life, his son's life, H's life is torn apart by the fact that he was wrongfully accused of something just so that they could get a good worker into the mines, like the injustice of the justice system at that Mm -hmm. time and the targeting um, because of his race and also because he was just a really big, strong guy. And they were like, he's going to make us money. Um, Willie's is the, the great migration, the move to Harlem and then the, the treatment of her as a woman of color specifically. So having to submit to the paper bag test where they held up the paper bag next to her and said, I was like, sorry, you're too dark to perform. Right. Um, stuff like that. That's, you know, crazy. And then, um, Sonny with, um, his disappointment in the NAACP and, and other organizations that were there to help, um, his community, but he felt were ineffective and were actually, you know, not able to really do anything. Yeah, there was a paragraph in there about their, I don't know, ineffectual nature or something. He has that debate, too, about the Nation of Islam. Another, right. it's just so rapid fire sometimes. I don't I don't feel like I got much out of that exchange or it wasn't super meaningful or something, but it, it's in there, and he, yeah. there is Sunny's, a mention, too. But yeah, yeah Sonny's chapter was definitely just, like, the most as far as, like, here's all the external factors and just shove it all into Sonny's narrative yeah, there specifically. Uh, yeah. And then his, his general anger and discontent with the treatment of the black community, like the fear of getting jailed, the fear of being pulled over, like all these things just because he's, um, he's a black man. Right. And, and also the, the drug epidemic at that time that specifically was like really tearing through um, the jazz scene. Um, so there, mm-hmm. all of those factors for Sonny and then for Marcus, right. who is more of the modern, right? Uh, the, the modern character, he's, he's also just like stuck in this fear because he's also, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is a modern America, but that doesn't mean that things have actually like gotten that much better. Right. So he, he, he's, um, working through his PhD, but he can't get through it because he's getting so overwhelmed and frustrated by the fact that every time he goes to study one thing, he just feels like there's just this domino effect that he has to talk about every single thing that's, that's um, happened to his community and nothing has changed and nothing is being addressed. And it's just too much almost to handle at one time, which is um, why he feels. Yeah. There's a paragraph that kind of summarizes that effect. I remember just, it, I think it even does what you were describing, where it just goes backwards and lists off even a lot of the things the book presented right, to. Right, exactly. So, so there, yeah. that th- those were all the external traumas that have affected the lineage of um, of Essie's children. So, mm-hmm. and, but whereas, like with Effie's children, a lot of that is just more of like personal stuff, like Qe's um, fear of being found out, as far as like maybe being gay or maybe just like, you know, he's, he's definitely not a hundred percent straight. Right. Um, and then James, who's, um, afraid of, of being somebody who is a, a slave involved in the slave trade. And he's afraid of, of being the big man of such a, a dishonorable occupation. So he leaves. Um, and then there's Abina who is also, 
uh, who's outcast because of James's decision and uh, because they treat her because uh, James treats her as like a son, as an equal. And so she's going against these cultural values. So all these things are actually just more domestic in a lot of ways. Um, and then she gets pregnant. And then Akua is, <laughs> is that she's um, raised in an abusive situation, at, right? Like she's constantly getting mm-hmm. abused by this preacher who's for some reason abusing her because he feels guilty about killing her mom. I don't know the, the minds of abusers. Yeah, well, I mean, he wants to... <laughs> He wants to save her. He, I mean, when you believe you can lead someone to salvation, you become pretty fervent about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if that's, if that's your belief, then it, I can see where the intensity comes from a little yeah. bit. The guilt, obviously, too. That's a pre- It's pretty clear in the drowning scene that he is... Doesn't he fall to his knees or something out of the shame yeah, of it? Or I, I forget like how that. it was phrased, but it's it's intense, yeah. Um. But yeah, so the but she's also an outcast. Like, there's a lot of outcasts going on, a lot of othering in these narratives. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. then um, and then Yaw is resentful of his mother and insecure about himself, and he makes himself an outcast in a lot of ways, um, which leads to years of misery and lonely loneliness and inertia. Um, a lot of these characters, there's a lot of inertia. They're not doing anything to help their situations in a lot of ways. James is probably the one that does mm-hmm. do something. but um, And then there's Marjorie, who is another outcast, um, although she eventually finds Marcus and is, is no longer feels that way. Right. There's the, and I was thinking too of the, in terms of doing something, who's the daughter of H that moves to Harlem? Willie. That's a huge, obviously a huge switch in the narrative. Yeah, that's Willie. Uh-huh. And, you know, affects the characters dramatically. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the other example of somebody who took strong direct action yeah. or something yeah. to affect it, to try and get away. But the trauma follows and, you know, or transforms, I guess, would be the better way to yeah. phrase it. Becomes something new. Any other thoughts on the... I think, yeah, it's, it is, especially for a three-word answer to that blank, definitely generational traumas is the best way to put it for yeah. sure. Yeah, well said. Any other thoughts on those or any other characters that jumped out no. or inherited moments that stood out to you? No, I'm good. Okay, yeah, excellent. Well, let's jump into our final segments here. we got a couple more planned. We'll briefly take a detour here into the Lost Pages. This is just a moment in the pod when we try and convey something we thought was underexplored or maybe could have used additional chapters or it could be something broader. I'm going to go pretty broad with it, so <laughs> I'm going to go pretty big picture um, let's imagine that this book was not this book, as I tend to do in an annoying fashion, <laughs> and just imagine a different book. Uh, I just think that I don't know what I would add because it's already so it's like a catalog of traumas. It's like a history 101 book. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's odd to think like, what do I want to add to this? I don't, I'm not really sure. I don't really think it's it's already maybe too ambitious as we've talked about. Like it's it maybe bites off a little more than it can chew. So instead for my lost pages, I just thought that H's section could be a book, mm. you know, why not spin that into a novel? Like, right. I think it thematically and historically speaking, it just is rich for a lot of things that are maybe underexplored, like exploitation of uh, laborers in prison or there's justice system about that earlier about the injustice of it. So it's there. There's also just the everyday realities of mining work and the brutality of, it the difficulty of that and the, you know there's health stuff there's also 
the union aspects union. and how to yeah and how laborers is especially that was pre-turn of the century wouldn't that have been i think it was like 1880s or something for him i forget the years yeah because um because slavery had right. just been abolished yeah by so that i just time, think yeah. that's a rich time period for exploration and it also avoids we've talked about this when we did some books like black lives matter focused books and whatever it's just you just want to get away from slavery sometimes because it just can be too much i don't it's just intense and it feels like very limiting in a, in a sense because it's i don't know it just that that kind of narrative has demands and sometimes you just want to study there's just so much more history to study and <laughs> it can be you just don't want to get lost in that thinking like well we got to return you know why not tackle that massive a glaring wound again or something anyway so if i had to like spin off a book i think h's would be it for me um, interesting time period intriguing character maybe a little simple in the story but i think you know he has a cool nickname and what you can't turn that down <laughs> double was it double handed eight or double pickaxe or whatever it is so yeah uh two, two shovel there it is yeah so yeah <laughs> so i just think that would be my lost pages would be let's check let's check in and see what she would do with that with a book just dedicated to that lens or something. Yeah. How about for yours? That's good. Um, for mine, uh, my favorite character was actually uh, mm-hmm. Abina. So I would have loved to have read more about her. She was just such such a, a full, fully realized character. Her personality just really stood out. She's... Um, Anyway, so what I I just wanted to know, like, what happened to her while she was pregnant with Akua? When she left the village and she was pregnant and she went to the missionaries, like, what happened at that point? We know that she dies um, a year after um, Akua is born. But, like, in the interim, what's happening to her? Is she getting, like, is she also getting abused by this preacher? Does she try to leave? Does Ohene ever try to contact her? Does he ever ask her to come back? Mm -hmm. Like... What about her parents? Does she does she just completely cut off all communication with her parents? Like what? I don't know. There's just so many questions that I have, and she's just such a full character. I really would have loved to have seen her interactions yeah. with the white community, with with these missionaries who are like trying to force her into right. being a Christian. I, I just think that it would have been we really. Even, I remember we made a little slight little joke about it at the halfway part one about how it's like well that's an ominous way to end it with missionaries showing up and like but the book doesn't dig into that it really it's i mean obviously there's a pretty meaningful plot based thing and so it like akua stuff is heavily influenced by the presence of them but there's not a chapter dedicated to the inner workings of it the direct effects of it maybe competing faith systems it's that stuff is all pretty surface level it really did not i thought there was going to be a whole big section dedicated to that conflict and it was more of a piece or part not the whole thing mm-hmm. so yeah i yeah. couldn't disagree with that addition for sure any other thoughts on some lost pages additions to make nope i think those were the two most compelling characters well i liked effia too but yeah. She was pretty well realized. I think Akua was my favorite. I just don't know what else I would... It, it, it almost feels like to add more about her, it's her section, as I already spoke to at length, it was already strange and just felt very yeah. different to me or something. So I don't know. What, I don't think I would add more of that. Or yeah, It would have to be kind of its I own I could stand alone as its own short story and be a great read. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, yeah. If there was a little more, maybe about her husband and how that, like a, you know, maybe the war and she how she burns him. You're right, though. That of all of them, that could be a standalone short story. That might, you're right, be the most rich to yeah. explore. 
All right, let's jump to the final segment then of this part two pod, and that is the critical assistance. This is the portion when we go outside of ourselves and survey some criticism of the book, reviews, blogs even. We've done those in the past, maybe other podcasts, etc., just to see what conversation is happening about the book and just try and talk through some criticism of it. Do you want to go first? I know you did you pull from the New Yorker? You went back to basics here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well at least we'll hear some real quality stuff whether we agree with (laughs) it or not. So yeah, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um this was called Descendants a Sprawling Tale of a Family Split Between Africa and America, written by Laura Miller for the New Yorker. Um and, and and I enjoyed reading this too because she was very uh a lot of the times when we read stuff, it's like overly nice about the writing, things that we, we like you and I would not agree with. Um, but she was actually very mm-hmm, even handed right. in her, her articles. It, it was quite enjoyable to read. Um, so she right. wasn't just pandering. She was, she was critically thinking anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll I'll start with what she started with. Homegoing, the title is taken from an old African-American belief that death allowed an enslaved person's spirit to travel back to Africa is rooted like the Bible in original sin. Unlike the biblical transgression, however, the source of the curse that dogs an Asante woman's descendants through seven generations defies pinpointing and straightforward assessments of blame. You might as well shun your own hand. The wrongs done emerge from the muddled ethics typical of domestic quarrels, but their repercussions are vast. So um, I pulled this one because I didn't even realize that homegoing was... Uh, an African-American belief. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, the, yeah. Thematically, it's pretty yeah. obvious, but uh, but I would not have known the right. history of it, though. Yeah, That's for so sure. I thought that was really interesting. And I also liked that she compared it to um, how the the original trauma, the, the fire, the, the rape, really, um, which led to mm-hmm. the birth and the fire, um, that... I like that she compared that to um, the biblical original sin because I was like, man, that's great. Because in this book, there's so many mentions of like, there's so many discussions of of Western religion versus um, traditional belief systems. So that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, the the idea of domestic quarrels. So yeah, the the domesticated or the domestic sphere versus the the um, external sphere that I had talked about with the gold coast narratives versus the the american narratives there yeah um and then she goes on to say um this ambitious form and jesse's determination to scrutinize the participation of west africans in the atlantic slave trade are the novel's chief strengths so the generational tone and everything um so i also agreed that the scope of it was great um and you and i both agreed with that Mm mm-hmm um, and I'll skip that. So here's where she starts talking a little bit more about um, some of the the lesser aspects of the the novel. So she writes about the the about Sunny, the character who is the the drug addict. These episodes feel less like the emanations of a coherent personality than like boxes that must be checked to make sure that Sonny represents a generation of black men. The rest of Jesse's American characters suffer from similar demographic imperatives. And I 100% agreed with that. Yeah, it's a great phrasing. 
Yeah, that's that's a good New Yorker yeah. moment yeah. for sure. There's always a you know there's always a phrasing or two yeah. in every one of the pieces from there that we use that I think that is the right way to say it. Um, and I, I think I alluded to this too. I don't know if this would be called a demographic imperative, but that forgetting the characters' names, of course, but that hint of gay romance that yeah. was in there to me felt so. It was just kind of like if you're not going to dig into that, like why are we? Why are you doing this? Like it just it feels like somebody was checking a box somewhere. I don't know for whom or what box, but it it moments like that I think came up maybe a little too often yeah. or something. And, yeah. Um... Great way to phrase She goes it. on to say, uh, too often, however, Jessie struggles to make the Link story form suit her epic enterprise. There are significant challenges to overcome, not least the lack of a central character to arrest the reader's attention and carry it through the book. Each chapter must start in a new place in time with a new set of people, at best picking up a few slender narrative threads from its predecessors. Link stories aren't the ideal way to deliver the amount of exposition that historical fiction requires. She also has a bad habit of forcing an interpretation that any intelligent reader is perfectly capable of picking up on her own. For example, Marjorie reached for the stone at her neck, her ancestor's gift. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think she makes a couple of really good points here. Um, it's, it is interesting to do kind of like this narrative style where it's more short story especially so coming off of reading burnt shadows recently where we do have the central character mm -hmm. and it is generational as well but we have one character that goes through all those years to pull yes. through the yeah. only thing that that jesse has as far as that goes is like a common ancestor but also the motifs that we picked up on which would be the the heirloom and then the the images of fire and water so it's a little bit more tenuous um, with that, but yeah, I, I think that's a fair point about that. Yeah, no, certainly it's, I think the, I hadn't thought about the forced interpretation, but I think that's part of what I was trying to get at earlier. Thank you again, New Yorker for the, for tagging <laughs> and <laughs> clarifying the thoughts that I can't. So what are, why are we recording this again? Just go read the New Yorker <laughs> in all manners and all, you know, at all moments anyway. But no, I think it is, it is expository in heavy handed ways. And then I guess that does creep into, to some of the, I, I just think we talked about the ending at the beginning of yeah. this episode, but it, I don't think it gets more. You can't skate up closer to an obvious ending without being, without saying right. it out loud, you know, which it does. But it, yeah, I would agree with that assessment too, for sure. The next sentence, um, I don't know if you're going to read it, but it's seeing that I also think like, nah, that probably is the right yeah, adjective. Uh, yeah. That's the right. That's the, the final point for, that I was going to make is, um, and, and yeah. I pointed it out kind of in my own way, but yeah, Jesse's prose is largely undistinguished. And yet there are flashes of quietly thrilling authority in the pages of homegoing. She displays a particular knack for evocative repetition. This shows uh, the unmistakable touch of a gifted writer and homegoing is a specimen of what such a writer can do when she bites off more than she is ready to chew. Rough as it is page by page, hampered as it is by a form that would daunt a far more practiced novelist, Homegoing succeeds by the end in accumulating no small emotional power. So despite its its shortcomings, yes, I think that this is a good read. It's It was entertaining in a lot of ways. I think I learned a lot from it. Um, I, would, I would recommend it to other people. And this is her debut novel as well. And I feel like her other mm -hmm. novels yeah, are going to be yeah. great. Um, so I would read something by her again, but 
But yeah, to the yeah. point about the the undistinguished language, yeah, the prose. There's some flashes of brilliance, especially in the Gold Coast narratives, but the American narratives, you don't you don't see that language developed quite as well. Yeah, and to have two such distinctly different settings, cultures at yeah. play, you would think. It, a more well firstly as she notes rightly that a more practiced novelist would maybe be like this is i'm not even going right. to attempt this this is too much or you know, it's like what am i going to write an 800 page novel then i guess i'll try but yeah. anyway if you're going to attempt this you'd think those maybe would differentiate themselves more i think back to again the confusing moments with the kua's visions yeah. and stuff so it just has yeah some oddities in it and yeah i think I'm just flattered that they said uh, bite off more than she could chew. I think I said yep. that earlier. So, there we go. I'm always, you know, you're always in a good camp when you accidentally copy the criticism from the New Yorker. So, <laughs> you know, unknowingly, of course. of course. But yeah, that's a great one. Good pick. And my gosh, what coherence and int- insight and, you know, quality thoughts about writing and the and the structure. I feel like every time we get a New York Times book review, it's like 99% summary. And then like, there's like one line in there that's a good critical yeah. insight into the quality yeah. or something so <laughs> yeah refreshing to see any other thoughts nope, on that I'm, one I'm good yeah well chosen my critical assistance comes from the kenyan review which is a college not the country kenya just in case that was like confusing yeah. <laughs> or something in the spelling um it is a literary journal from the kenyan college uh, i don't know where that is but it is by this review of the book is by kate osana simonian or simonian and I pulled a couple quotes from it. It was also a little more analytical, I think, maybe a bit more positive, but I pulled some negative stuff too. So it's kind of a mix. We'll start with this one. Homegoing is made with care. Each chapter is from the point of view of one character, and as the chapters move chronologically and without skipping generations, each protagonist is the child of one we formerly met. Some of the best storytelling occurs at the start of the novel. These chapters set in Ghana, or I don't think it would have been there, right? It was Asante land or Ashanti land. Anyway. Uh, Gold Coast. Resonate with the orality of spoken history and myth that is elicited comparisons of Jesse to Zora Neale Hurston. So that's not the author's comparison. I would say I do not agree with that (laughs) comparison. I think it, it has some ambition and similar attempts at language, but I mean, Hurston is a legend for, if nothing else, um, like idiomatic speaking dialect, yeah. mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And this book does not do much with that yeah. at all. I, well, that's unfair. It like think of how Marcus speaks, some of the slang, some of the casual uses of, of slang terms and everything. Like versus obviously the, the speakers from the Gold Coast and some of the more formal ways that they speak. It's it's in there, but I just that comparison seems a bit hasty yeah, or something. I don't know. Sure. I would, I would have to agree. Definitely favorable. Yeah. <laughs> a kind comparison, <laughs> I, would, I would say. So, um, another quote. Race and lost heritage play an enormous role in uh, Jesse's novel. Though the characters are often mistreated in the U.S. because of their race, they are simultaneously alienated from their African roots due to geographical separation, the um, anonymity of slavery, and the stories that never have the chance to pass from one generation to another. These stories are left to the reader alone. So this is, I think, probably one of the better compliments I could give, which it does, through its structure and you know character development, it does have this kind of... 
I don't know, like infuriating quality because you see things just missing or you see, you know, as a person who can read all of it together and look at all the pieces on the board, so to speak, for a metaphor, you it's frustrating then to see like, oh, if you only knew this one thing or had this connection or learned yeah. this lesson or, and so I do, I do appreciated that insight. It made me think back and think like, yeah, I do. I, I believe in that criticism or in that idea that that's one of the better things it does. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. A um, couple more quotes. Um, Jesse's application of the link story structure to the genealogy of the enslaved is particularly brilliant. Uh, not a quote I would agree with. I don't know about brilliant <laughs> anyway. Um, by having the characters move chronologically through time without skipping generations, Jesse dra- uh, draws a direct and unbroken line from the original trauma of slavery to the present day. She thereby argues through the book's very structure that racism has not been extinguished over time but merely institutionalized. Her wide temporal g- gauge is necessary to depict slavery's propensity to constantly shift form. Paradoxically, it is also the chronology or chronologically linked structure that um, poses the greatest challenge to Jesse's style, which I thought the ending was key. I mean, she just yeah. said it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but then said it's a chance like it's I don't know if it was a brilliant decision. I think it's an interesting yeah. one for sure and successful in some ways, but I don't know. I think it hampered some of the writing and the way she had to just kind of portray as what was the phrase from the New Yorker? They they become symbols of of generations yeah, or something. Was, was the uh, phrase? I don't remember. Hold on. Uh, well it was right. Demographic symbols or something? Stand ins. Anyway. Um that's that's the right criticism of it, I I think. I think also the sentence, her wide temporal gauge is necessary to depict slavery's propensity to constantly shift form. I don't, I mean, obviously slavery influenced a lot of institutionalized things, uh, laws, cultural beliefs, behaviors, traditions, all, all that stuff. I don't, I don't think shifting form is quite the right, is quite the right phrase. I think slavery is a pretty unique institution and we can, I think we have significant or um, sophisticated enough language to say that well, I don't know. There are people academically and otherwise who do say that the pr- current prison system is slavery. Uh, that argument could be, it, that feels like semantics yeah. to me though, or something like, I don't, I would hope our language is sophisticated enough to leave slavery as its own institution mm-hmm. with its own boundaries or something. But I just thought that sentence was a little generous as to the quality of the argumentation of the book or something. It, yeah. And, and, if we were to take it as like shifting form there, I think that that would only really apply to the American narratives as well, because mm-hmm. as I pointed out yeah. with the gold coast narratives, it, it was mostly the domestic uh, traumas that were, were really investigated the the slavery, like, yeah, there, there was discussion of slavery. Slavery was happening around them. There was also like the house girls, but Mm-hmm. Later yeah. on, like in in the other stories, in the later stories, we don't really see that. We don't. I, I don't. I don't see how that could. Right. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not looking at it. Not the yeah. Not the most impressive achievement of the yeah. book or something. To phrase right. it that way, like I don't. Yeah, I didn't come away thinking or feeling that either. Final quote I'll read from this one. In sum, this is a fine book revealing ambition, emotional heat, an instinct for story, and a willingness to play with form and character. But the question of what gives a work value goes beyond these formal qualities and into the political. The goal of fiction is rarely to explore radical concept and more often to animate old ones. And then I cut the quote at the end, but she essentially just says, like, in this book animates slavery's, you know, sins really well, uh, something more or less. So I think the revealing ambition part the emotional heat, I don't, again, I ha, I struggled to latch on, I think. I, I think it almost felt sometimes reserved in its emotions, and maybe it was just my 
lack of investment because of, of the resetting mm-hmm. nature. But I, I do feel like it had, while the content and some of the stuff in it was is dealing with the most intense stuff of life, of trauma, history, all that, it didn't... I don't think I'm going to remember this for feeling like it was a an intense read, which is really weird to say because it's so objectively yeah. intense. <laughs> but I don't I don't think I felt the heat while reading it to put to use her own yeah, word. Yeah, I get that. It's um if you're not invested in in the characters, right? If the characters are not developed beyond um being a symbol of the of the concept that she's trying to get us to understand, it's it, it's more of an academic exercise than, a, than, a, than an emotional one. So, yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Also a fascinating line here that would take its own series of podcasts to unpack, but the question of what gives a work value goes beyond formal qualities and into the political. Like, that's a... She just stated a summary of an entire group of, like, literary philosophy <laughs> and just kind of slid that in. Like, that's a... Yeah, I, I was just... Yeah, I, I saw that and kind of blinked and was like, wait a second, that's a... You've just assumed a massive truth <laughs> that I don't... <laughs> that's like a... We'd have to get into the... Yeah, we'd have to dig open the literary theory to- tomes and get into critical oh, theory yeah. to unpack For that real. statement <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't not one that i would particularly agree with um i don't think but anyway yeah and that was the and then animating old uh, you know bringing up kind of revisiting traumatic things bringing that to light it's although it felt very summary to me and as i've said this term a couple times very 101 yeah. you know like here's lecture 101 level i think that's fine you know i don't not every book has to be every project in every mission right. or something. This one had a pretty clear one to me. Yeah. So, and was successful. Any final thoughts on the critical stuff? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Okay. Well, before we close out, any final thoughts on Homegoing by yeah, Jesse? Yeah, I enjoyed the book, and um, I, I do look forward to reading another one by her. Um, and it's mm-hmm. not bad for yeah. a debut. I, we've been kind of spoiled with debut novels, right, with Toni Morrison and with... Um, Right, uh, Richard Lee or Richard Kim. Sorry, no, I was sorry. Chong Ray yeah, Lee. Yeah. Chong Ray Lee. Wow, Amanda. Wow. Yeah, Ch- I was just say Chong Ray Lee. No, you got there. You got there. That was a long time ago. I don't. You know, I'm not going to cast the first stone for misremembering a name <laughs> from that long ago. But no, you're right. That we just so happened. Also, Chong Ray Lee is clearly. He just wants to write with great intensity and kind of like verve. I don't know what the right word would be. Verve or something. He just has a style about him, too. And comparing anyone to Toni Morrison's just yeah. tough shit. That's <laughs> it's tough. <true. laughs> it's just tough for literally everybody. It's tough, man. I, I struggle with it, too, because I do think back and remember some of the passages and moments from that. And I'm just like, man, why can't. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm reading my in my own free time. I'm reading like my mediocre sci-fi novels, and I'm like, why can't a sci-fi writer just write like Toni Morrison, <laughs> but about sci-fi stuff? <laughs> anyway, there are authors like that, though. I think Margaret Atwood does it kind of. So a- anyway, a digression. All right, uh, no other final thoughts on this book, though. Uh, nope, I'm good. Just good, huh? Just a good book. Yeah, <laughs> that's. I'll get to that in the book recommendation. Um, we thank you, as always, for listening to the whole episode. We have been the Light Literary Podcast. Find us on any platform, rate, recommend, retweet, whatever the verbs I said earlier were. <laughs> tell us, tell your friends and family about us. We are up on just about everywhere. If uh, this book was not to your liking, uh, thanks for listening anyway, first of all. And then we do have other books coming up in order, so let's talk about those. Amanda, do you want to set them up with the next sure. books? 
Uh, the next book is going to be They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera, which is a young adult non, uh, young adult fiction. Right. Um, then we have Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. And mm-hmm. um, then we'll have Ghetto Side by Jill Lavoie. Right. Nonfiction, finally. Back to nonfiction with yeah. Ghetto Side. So. And crime stuff. People love crime. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> Very different, though. It's like institutionalized issues. And anyway, there's race and class stuff in that one. Okay. Well, listeners, we've appreciated your time. We've kept you long enough. And so until next time, we'll see you between the pages. Mm-hmm.